You know, I was uh, sitting in, standing there, and uh, a conviction that came to me is, you know what our country needs now more than ever? Is happy, joyful followers of Jesus. Um, The type when you're around them, I mean, it's just contagious, and you have to ask, what do you have? May that be marked of the Bridge Church. That has nothing to do with this morning. And I also want to preface that with, um, that doesn't mean that we gloss over pain and evil and suffering. Um, If you're like me, you've been watching Ukraine the last four days. I mean, it's horrific. And so we don't ignore the evil and the pain in life, but we're able to stand in the gap, knowing we're true joy comes from. So anyways, that has nothing to do with this morning. I just thought I would, I would let that go. Um, the provocative Tony Campola. He's a, wow. <laughs> Honestly, I'm shocked that someone in here knows who Tony Campola is. So that, that Peggy Bunt, was, okay, wow, a couple of hands. Whoa, okay, everyone. Uh, and he is provocative, so there are some people who don't like him, and that's okay. I'm just sharing a, a story of his that is of worth, I think. Anyways, he wrote a book titled, and by the way, this is like the best book title ever. It's called The Kingdom of God is a Party. How's that? All right? So uh, Tony's a Christian psychologist, he, he, uh, not psychologist, sociologist, and he lives on the East Coast, and he's a frequent public speaker, and so he travels a lot, and so he, he literally opens his book, like the introduction is this story that I'm going to share, it's his, not mine. And uh, he, he flies into Honolulu, Hawaii. And I realized this morning when I put the shirt on, I have some pineapples on. It has nothing to do with this story, all right? So don't make fun of me. And I'll just say I got it at Target yesterday for 15 bucks, so take that. <laughs> I feel good this morning, so we're, this is going to be a fun morning, all right? So Tony... He's in Honolulu, Hawaii, on a speaking gig, and uh, so he goes from the East Coast to there, so he's, his body's out of whack in terms of jet travel, and um, he's hungry at 3 o'clock in the morning, because his body, it's, it's 6 a.m., all right? So he goes out to the, the streets of downtown Honolulu, and uh, he's hungry, he needs some breakfast, and he finds like this 24-7 sleazy, like all-night diner. The kind that, like, you're kind of, ooh, I don't know if I should go in there or not. Well, Tony goes in there, he gets a donut, he grabs a cup of coffee, and at 3.30 in the morning, the doors of this diner burst open, and to his discomfort in March, eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. And they sit on either side of him. Look at you guys, ooh. (laughs) In what? Income nine prostitutes in our church. No, uh, um, anyways. Uh, Their talk was loud and crude. He felt completely out of place. And he was about to make a getaway at 3.30 in the morning, but he heard one of the women who sat right next to him, he heard her say to the other who was on the other side of Tony, hey, tomorrow's my birthday. I turn 39. And then the other girl is kind of like, with like a nasty, rude voice. Well, why are you telling me that? Okay, so tomorrow's your birthday. What what do you want me to do? Throw you a birthday party? We're not going to do that. I don't care. And then birthday girl over here, 
she's like, whoa, like, why are you so mean? Why are you so cold, rude? She's like, I'm not expecting you to do anything. That, that's not why I brought that up. She said, actually, I, I wouldn't expect anybody to throw me a birthday party. I've never had a birthday party thrown for me. Why should I have one now? When Tony heard that, he made the decision. He sat and he waited till they left. And then he called over the guy behind the counter. I think he says this guy's name is Harry. Maybe he's the owner. And he says, hey, hey Harry, do, do these women, do they come in every night? And Tony says, yeah, yeah. And he told me, he's like, no, no, like the, the one right next to me, like does she come in every single night? And he said, yeah, that's Agnes. Agnes comes in here every night. And Tony said, well, I say that because she says that tomorrow's her birthday. She's turning 39. And he's like, hey, what do you say we do something for her? What do you think if we throw her a birthday party in here tomorrow night when she comes in? And he says, yeah, yeah, you know, Agnes, now that I think about it, she's one of those really kind and loving people, but no one is ever kind and loving to her. At 2.30 the next morning, Tony walks into the sleazy diner. Except this time, Tony had picked up some decorations at a store. Big, large cardboard letters, happy birthday, Agnes. He hangs them up and he decks this diner from all four walls. And the, women, the, the, the lady, I guess there were ladies doing the cooking at this diner. Apparently they had gotten the word out. Because by 3.15 in the morning, every prostitute in Honolulu <laughs> was inside the diner. Wall to wall with Tony. <laughs> and at 3.30 in the morning, like on the dot, in walks in Agnes with her same rude, crude, loud, annoying friend. And Tony had everyone ready, door opens, Agnes walks in and they say, happy birthday, Agnes. And everyone's clapping and just full of joy. And Tony says, I have to read this directly, he says, never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, so stunned, so shaken. Her mouth fell open, her legs seemed to buckle, and her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And she was led to sit on one of the stools along the counter, and we all sang happy birthday to her. Her eyes moistened, and she lost it, and she just openly cried. And Agnes is just looking down at her cake and without taking her eyes off of it, she slowly and softly says, Harry, the guy behind the counter, can I just look at this cake? She's like, actually, no, no, Harry, is it okay? I mean, is it, is she like, can I take this cake home with me? And he says, sure, that's fine. Like, it's your birthday cake. Take it home with you. And then she looks at Tony and she says, hey, I, I need to go take this cake to my house. She's like, I, I just live a couple of doors down the street. Like, I, I, I'm just, I need to take this cake, take it to my house, and, and I'll, I'll be right back. I promise you. She gets off the stool, picks up the cake, 
carries it like it's like the holy grail or something, walks slowly towards the door, and, and she leaves, and everyone's just motionless. And it's just completely silent at 3.30 in the morning in Honolulu with a diner with a bunch of prostitutes. And not knowing what to do, Tony breaks the silence by saying, what do you say we pray? And looking back on it, he says, you know, it's quite a strange scene. There you are with the sociologist leading a prayer meeting with prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in Honolulu. But he's like, it just felt like the right thing to do. And Tony then prayed for Agnes. He prayed for her salvation. He prayed that God would change her life. That God would do good to her. And when he finished, I mean, just imagine this. Harry, the guy behind the counter, he looks at Tony and says, Hey, you never told me you're a preacher. And he says, What kind of church do you belong to? And then Tony says, In one of those moments where like the words just come perfectly to you, Tony answers, quote, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry waited a moment. Quote, says this, No, you don't. There is no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Turn with me to the book of Mark, chapter 2. Mark, chapter 2, verse 13. If you need a Bible this morning, we're at page 683 and these lovely, lovely orange Bibles underneath your chairs. Um, here's what you need to know up to this point in, in Mark 2. Jesus is beginning to do what Jesus does, and that is very subversive ministry. Jesus is not comfortable. If you don't know Jesus yet, if you're not familiar with him, he will make you uncomfortable. And he loves to make religious people uncomfortable, and that's perhaps what we're going to be looking at this morning. Right before this, Jesus heals a man with leprosy, and he, the way he heals him is he touches him. And that was incredibly taboo. You did not get near someone with leprosy. And then as Pastor Brock shared with us last Sunday, Jesus has the authority and the audacity to forgive sins, which was subversive because only God can do that. We enter now to our story, verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake, and a large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. Levi got up and followed him. Verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, see, Jesus is the type of guy where he invites himself over, right? Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. We'll just let that sit there for a little bit. 
Up until about five years ago, I did not understand the difference between highways and freeways. Meaning, I thought those referred to the same thing, which then I, why are there two words, different words describing the same thing? I mean, like, aren't these words synonymous? I always thought it was weird. And then I began going on roads outside of California, Midwest, East Coast. I lived in Boston for a year. And I realized real quick, ah, yes, there is a difference between freeways and highways. Um, If you don't know, if you go to other parts of the country, often you get on what we call a highway or a freeway, and you have to pay money. Like, literally, there is a toll booth. Sometimes, um, like I remember the one outside of Logan, outside of Boston, um, Logan's airport there, you literally can physically give money, and now, you know, you can scan something electronically, or they just take a picture of your license plate, and all those people with new cars that don't have one think they're sneaking by. All right, some of that just kind of went over the head. Um, so, this was all new to me, and I, they make me so angry, because uh, according to maps, there's like one way to get somewhere, and I have to take this toll road, and so I have to pay like eight bucks just to get somewhere. That's ridiculous. That's stupid. It's a pet peeve of mine. The problem here in California, um, we have freeways, which is great, so we don't have to pay to drive, um, but it does cost us our time and our emotions, and then even when you do pay, right, Fast Track, I went to Cal State Fullerton. I remember using Fast Track in the 91, and I'm paying, and there's still bumper-to-bumper traffic in the Fast Track, right? Like, that's even worse. Jesus is here walking along the Sea of Galilee, and he gets to a major toll booth. This is a major international road that you have to travel on. It went west of Damascus through Capernaum to the Mediterranean Sea and then eventually south to Egypt. Major, major international road. And to use it, you have to pay. It was annoying just like it is annoying for us today. And so Jesus, he comes up to the toll booth and there's a gentleman named Levi there. Levi is the tax collector at this toll booth road. Um, You've probably heard me say this before, but it's worth repeating. At that time in the first century, Jewish people absolutely hated Jewish tax collectors. Tax collectors were actually some of the biggest social outcasts in the first century. Not only did they take your money, and you had no option. I mean, you just had to pay the toll to get to where you needed to go. But these tax collectors, they also sided with Rome. They kind of basically worked for Rome. Rome was Israel's biggest enemy at that time. So not only do they take your money and you don't have a choice, but they also are like your enemy. Your enemy is taking your money and there's nothing you can do about it. In addition, tax collectors slapped their own personal fee on top of it so that they could personally make a lot of money. They were traitors. They were cheaters. And Jesus has the audacity to invite Levi to follow him. We usually get to, preachers will get to the meal part, and they skip skip over this part. This was scandalous in and of itself. 
Now, we know what a disciple here at the bridge is our mission statement. So when, when Jesus invited Levi to be his disciple, what he was saying is, Levi, I want you to be with me. I want you to become like me. And I want you to do what I do. Everyone else yelled at Levi and shouted at him, probably cussed him out, complained about him, but Jesus didn't grumble. Jesus didn't shout. He didn't criticize. Jesus invited Levi to follow him. N.T. Wright, um, one of my favorite theologians, explains the scene this way with the sentence. It was perhaps the first time for ages that someone had treated him, Levi, as a human being instead of as a piece of dirt. Now, not only was this stupid and bizarre of Jesus to do, but what he did next, I mean, it just went to the other level. Eventually, this is actually what killed Jesus. See, the problem here for the the Pharisees, which are the religious leaders of the day, they fully expected there to be a great banquet feast when their Messiah would come to restore and rescue the nation of Israel. They were expecting parties, banquets. It was in their language in the Old Testament. Here's what they didn't expect, and here's their bone to pick with Jesus. They didn't like the guest list on his banquets. That was the issue. It wasn't that Jesus was eating and drinking. It was who he was eating and drinking with. Um, This would be similar, just so that we understand the punch of this. Um, This would be like Jesus today eating with members of ISIS, especially in the last four days. This would be like Jesus eating with Putin, with pedophiles. That is the shock, the social radicalness of what Jesus is doing here. We have domesticated Jesus. He's going to shatter our boxes. He's being completely subversive here. Um, To give you an idea of how subversive this is, in the first century ancient world, um, there was a name for this. It was called table fellowship. It mattered who you ate with. Here's what New Testament scholar Scott Barchi says. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the cultures of the Mediterranean basin in the first century of our era. Mealtimes were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic, and listen to these words, of friendship, intimacy, and unity. When you ate with someone, you're, you're being a friend with them, you're being intimate with them, and you're being one with them. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. On the other hand, when persons are, were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way to reconciliation. Essentially this, meals were boundary markers. They showed who you identified with. As this scholar says, it shows um, who you're friends with, who who your, your tribe is, who you're in unity with. Um, you've heard the phrase that you are what you eat. Jesus changes that. He says, You are who you eat with. Now, 
I think we do the same thing today. So think with, real quick. You are who you eat with. So I would assume that most people in here, when we have meals, you're eating with people who are just like you. One, your family. You eat meals with your family, right? They're probably going to be very similar to you. Um, you go out for meals uh, in business. Maybe you're having a business meeting. And so there is a shared mutual financial interest. You have that in common. Um, I would assume you go out to eat with friends, and I would assume your friends are probably have somewhat the same passions, same hobbies, maybe the same sports team, maybe roughly the same income level, uh, maybe there's the same nationality. You get it. There's going to be some type of commonality with the people that you eat with. So, 2,000 years later, we do the same thing today. Who you eat with says a lot about who you are. And here's the crazy thing Jesus does. Jesus ate with the wrong people. Just, that's, it's really a simple point. Jesus ate with the wrong people. Jesus ate with tax collectors. Um, in that day, sinners could mean prostitutes. It could mean adulterers. It could mean robbers. Jesus, in other words, ate with people in so many ways completely unlike first century Jewish religious leaders. And he's not just randomly eating with them. He's making a point. And Jesus' point that he's making is simply this. It is all grace. Jesus eating with tax collectors and symbols was a provocative symbol of grace. Leonard Sweet writes this. How did Jesus win people over? And I wish the American church would get this. Not by standing against them or arguing with them, but by walking alongside them and inviting them to the table. Check this out. Jesus didn't keep a moral table. He kept a healing table. Here's how Jesus' table fellowship compared with the religious people of his day. Jesus was welcoming, the Pharisees were unwelcoming. Jesus was gracious while they were religious. Jesus was inclusive while the Pharisees were exclusive. Jesus' meals were full of feasting while theirs were full of fasting. Jesus' meals were full of happiness and joy and laughter and theirs were full of grumbling. The Pharisees wanted Jesus to be a doctor who avoided sick people, but Jesus can't do his healing work unless he's with sick people. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to eat and drink with people who know that they need grace. Tim Chester in his book, A Meal with Jesus, which by the way I think is top ten book says this, God is indiscriminate. He chooses all the wrong sorts of people. He invites everyone to his great party. He invites the best and the worst, the highest and the lowest, and here it is, he invites you. If you think you're the highest this morning, you're the lowest. And if you think you're the lowest, you're the highest. Yeah, I mean, you ever see the movie Little Miss Sunshine? I asked Alex, our tech director, this. He didn't know what I was talking about. That might reveal Alex's age. I'm sorry, Alex. <laughs> to which the same thing Brock says about my music choice. 
makes fun of my age. It's all right. I just think of NSYNC and Britney Spears. <laughs> oh, I'm going to stop there. Um, okay, so Tim Chester, he brings up uh, this movie, Little Miss Sunshine, in his book. And uh, if you don't know the plot line, I'll, I'll give it away. I'm sorry, but you've had 10, 15 years to watch the movie by now. So Little Miss Sunshine is about this seven-year-old daughter named Olive. Olive's really awkward, like really big glasses. And uh, the thing about Olive is that she wants to win a beauty contest, and they go from Albuquerque, New Mexico, I believe, all the way, and they make a road trip to Redondo Beach. Here's the catch. With her highly dysfunctional and emotionally bankrupt family. Here's an example of this. Um, Olive's father is a failed motivational speaker who offers self-help imp improvement. And, and the funny thing about uh, her father is that he uses these cliche sayings to make fun of like losers, but the irony in the movie is that he's a failed loser himself. Her uncle Frank, Frank is homosexual and he tried to commit suicide when he was rejected by his boyfriend. Olive's brother, Dwayne, literally refuses to speak. Like he, took, he, he takes a vow of silence because he's a follower of Nietzsche. If you don't know who Nietzsche is, he's a famous philosopher. Olive's grandfather is addicted to heroin. And then you have her mom, and her mom is like the, the dysfunctional one who tries to keep the rest of the dysfunction like all together. And, and Chester writes, like, they, they all get into this VW van. I mean, this is hilarious. The van itself is dysfunctional, so the horn is constantly on. The door falls off, and they have to push start it every single time they use it. All right? So the van itself is a symbol of the plot. And so there's this scene in the movie where the, the, the VW van is, is driving across, and then they realize, oh, wait. Olive's not in the van. They left her actually at the gas station that they just came from. So then you see the van go right across the street again. And it, the van never stops because if it stops, then they have to push start it again. So they literally go by this gas station. They see Olive and they put her in the car as the van is still going because the van can't stop. It's quite the scene. And you hear the father's words as they're driving back the other direction. He says, no one gets left behind. No one gets left behind. And Chester put, that's the church where no one gets left behind. At the film's climax, you have this dysfunctional family. They finally arrive at this beauty con uh, contest in Redondo Beach. And it is the epitome of like perfect, respectable, manicured, literally, without blemish or fault. And, but there's this seething undertone there of envy, rivalry, arrogance, and these two worlds collide with comic results. The dysfunctional family and the perfect beauty contest. Chester writes, quote, that's what's going on at Levi's party. Two worlds are colliding. 
Jesus comes crashing into the Pharisees' world of self-reliance, pride, superiority, hypocrisy, and self-justification with his utterly subversive message of grace. Two questions for us this morning. They're going to be difficult. They're simple, but they're difficult. First, who in your life do you think is irredeemable? Who in your life do you think is irredeemable? Why don't you just picture that person? At the time of Jesus, the religious leaders never, never would have viewed tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and robbers as redeemable. So much so that they wanted nothing to do with them, meaning they wouldn't even eat with them. Who is that in your life? Who's that person? Maybe, honestly, it's a category a stereotype. I can think of some right now. Maybe it's, oh, well, he's a Democrat. Oh, he's a Republican. Oh, they're, they're one of those anti-vaxxers. Oh, they're one of those mass mandate people. Oh, they're one of those protesters. Whatever category, whatever stereotype, oh, they watch Fox. Oh, they watch CNN. Man, I just, I just long for the day we don't judge people by what news channel they watch. It's insane. Oh my gosh, I'm like scared to turn on my TV. What is someone going to think of me? We laugh, but honestly, it's real. Man, we need some happy Christians. Who's that person in your life? You think they're the most unclean, unhealthy, irreligious unholy person? That's the first question. Who is that for you? Not abstractly, but for you. Secondly, do you eat with them? Are you at parties with them? Do you share a table with them? Do you practice table fellowship with those people. See, if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to be with him, become like him, and do what he does, then we should be eating with people and get the same reaction that Jesus got. You see that? Who can you eat with such that the Pharisees of today's culture look at you or think inside, how dare Mark eat and drink with that person? That is the point of this passage. You see how Jesus made religious people in his culture feel uncomfortable? If we follow Jesus today, there's some uncomfortability that will happen. 
And when, when people ask us, well, why do you eat, why do you hang out with so-and-so? The response, which was Jesus' response is, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Jesus hasn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Another way of asking this, do some inventory of just the last six months for you, last couple years. When you throw parties, who's there? When you go out to eat, who's there? Who do you eat with? Because remember, you are who you eat with. We still have cleanliness codes and boundary markers today in 2022 America. We're just like the Pharisees 2,000 years ago. We like to poke fun of Pharisees in sermons. Where the real sting is, is that a lot of the American church today acts just like Pharisees. And what does that, what does that reveal about what we think of grace? If we only think that God's grace for peop- should be for people who look just like us. And there's that famous quote that the church isn't a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. My reaction to this the last couple of days has been this. I'm so glad that Jesus invites me to his table. I'm so glad that Jesus invites me to fellowship with him. Why? Because I don't belong. None of us do. We all need grace. See, if there were boundary markers at Jesus' table, if there was a moral law cleanliness code, Jesus would be eating by himself. None of us would be invited. This isn't actually an us versus them. That was the problem that the Pharisees made, is that they started with an us versus them. Do you know that Jesus' favorite image for the kingdom of God, Jesus loved to speak in parables and stories and illustrations. His favorite illustration for the kingdom of God is a banquet where everyone's sitting around a table. The good news of Jesus, as Jean Lekerk once put it, and I tried to pronounce it in a good French way, he put this, Jesus ate good food with bad people. I love that. Jesus ate good food with bad people. Jesus invites us to his eternal banquet feast. And there's going to be a lot of people sitting at that table who look nothing like you and me. How do I know? Revelation 21, 22. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, everything, a melting pot at God's table. And the, the invitation for us today isn't just to get excited about that in the future, but it's actually to practice it now. To use this language further, we are to offer an appetizer, a sample of God's eternal banquet feast now. 
I want to be a part of that church. Harry to Tony in Honolulu. Nah. Churches like that don't exist. Can we with humility, because of grace, say, hmm, there is one in the Chino Valley Here's what I want us to do. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. On one level, the point of this passage, I think the primary point of this passage, is for us to go eat and drink with people who desperately need the grace of God. That's super practical. Like, it doesn't get any more practical than that. Perhaps on a deeper level, though, I think the question for us as a church is, are we all in desperate need of Jesus' grace? The bridge will expand God's kingdom to the degree that we know we are sick and in a hospital. There is no us for step because there's no one who needs the grace of God more than me. You see that? This isn't a museum for saints. This is a hospital for the sick. What would it look like for a church that is desperately on its knees for the grace of God? I am not worthy of you, God. I don't deserve you. I got a lot of bad stuff I've done or that I haven't done. Jesus, I need you. When we get to that posture on our knees, that's when things get fun. God works with people who are humble and need grace. And unfortunately, he often skips over religious people who are wound up grumbling. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you would come We want more than anything right now. We just want your grace. Nothing else. We don't worry about what we're doing later today. In this moment, Lord, we want to be hungry and desperate for you. When we're at our lowest, you are at your highest. You know, I'll say amen, that prayer is over. We view this time, it's not about the sermon. You know what the the pinnacle, the climax of our Sunday service is? It's right now. And it often takes place right here. I was just with, with about 100 pastors from all over the world. Each of us as a room just like this came up because we were desperately in need of God's grace. And it wasn't there's a brilliant speaker before who's full of knowledge, but the moment that God moved was when those leaders who dropped their agendas and came down and said, Jesus, I need your grace. And people just started, I was praying for people who I don't even know from a different country. And that was how the spirit of God moved. If you're hungry for more, because you know that you're sick and a sinner. 
Can we just come up and pray for one another right here? Come, Holy Spirit.